Welcome to the Religious Studies Project uh, 2020 October edition of Discourse, which is our critical take on the category of religion and current events. I'm your host today. I'm Andy Alexander. I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia at Emory University, where I am currently working on my PhD. Joining me today are two wonderful guests, Hannah Munarudden and Leslie Duro-Smith. Henna is a newcomer to the Religious Studies Project. Welcome, Henna. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi. So happy to be here this morning. I am Henna, and I'm in the Religious Studies PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill. I focus on the everyday scenes of Muslim gender becoming through spoken word and ritual performance in the U.S. context. Excellent. And also here with us today is a longtime friend and contributor to the Religious Studies Project, Leslie Dura smith Leslie, we're happy to have you back here with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and where you are? You betcha. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am um, a professor of religious studies and director of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Avila University in Kansas City, Missouri. And I, um, you know, my research has focused on a number of different things, but generally it's all kind of grouped under the heading of um, evangelicalism in the United States and uh, gender and rhetoric. So that's, that's just a wee bit of what I do. Excellent. I think that given your interest, both uh, will make for a wonderful discussion today. Since we are coming up on the 2020 U.S. presidential election very soon here in the United States, We've decided to dedicate this month's episode of Discourse to the election coverage and conversations around the campaigns of the candidates running. Of course, uh, we have Donald Trump and Mike Pence running for the Republican Party and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who are running for the Democratic Party. We just had the second presidential debate last night. We've now had one vice presidential debate. I feel like there's just there's been so much in the past few weeks, let alone the sort of campaign trail leading up to this point that we can discuss. I thought that we could really bridge your interest with a lot of what's happening uh, in the election coverage, looking at issues of race, religion, gender, shock, power, with regard to a few sort of events that we've seen in this that tie together to create a certain... What would you call it? Recipe for a culture. Exactly. Perfect. To dive in and to kick us off, we're going to start looking at the sort of shock and affect in relation to much of what Trump has been saying recently during this campaign and at these debates. So, Henna, will you give us a little background here and, and get our conversation going? Yeah, of course. The election. How do I get started? Well, I guess before we get into the nitty gritty of the affect of politics of this election, I think it's just appropriate that I ask y'all, how are you feeling about this election? Did any of y'all get a chance to watch any of the two debates so far? Yeah. um, You know, I think that one of the things that's really fascinating, and I'll talk about this later on, but fascinating about American culture is the degree to which that we effectively align ourselves with our politicians in certain ways. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, this reminds me a lot of how um, basically like toddlers behave <laughs> when, <laughs> not, no, not really like that when, or I, I don't know. Also, it reminds me sometimes of how like, you know, my cats behave that when there's a certain degree of stress in the house, everyone mm. knows it. Right. And, um, right. And not to liken the American people to children, toddlers, or cats, but I think I just did that. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think the gist is that it's really hard not to um, be impacted by, um, by what feels like a really unstable cultural climate at the moment. And if right. there weren't a pandemic going on, I'm sure that maybe we'd all feel a, a little bit better. But that's not the case. And and um, yeah. and it's also important to remember that that's also the environment in which our politicians now must respond to us as a public. And if mm-hmm. one of their professional tasks is is producing rhetoric, which, you know, that's that's one way to think about political life. Right. Uh, it's, it's been really fascinating to watch the messages that have emerged out of both American parties regarding how we should digest the pandemic and, and how we should approach it and, and what it means to to uh, be an American or to have kind of a uh, what's considered to be kind of a quote unquote uh, normal life in the midst mm-hmm. of this environment, which is anything but normal for a very wide number of reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the pandemic is that it's bringing all, a lot of these issues to the mm-hmm. fore, right? Not only do you see the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, but you also see the reemergence of um, the healthcare crisis and actually white supremacy, truly. Um a lot of these things are reemerging, and I guess my question to both and Andy, please participate in this <laughs> conversation as well. You don't have to be the host only. But how how does the how do these things make you feel? And like what 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 does it feel like to be a part of this election cycle and this circumstance in this pandemic when a lot of these things are going on? I I think that one of the interesting things that I see happening a lot um, that I have written about quite extensively is, you know, is this thing called chaos rhetoric, where there's just a, a mm-hmm. general sense that in order to motivate the public to do particular things, that there's not only, you know, like a heavy injection of fear rhetoric going on right now, um, right, uh, but at the same time, there is um, the sense that each or actually, I think, you know, the fear rhetoric is, is perhaps most prominently coming from the Republican side at the moment with the threat of um, election tampering and, you know, and and all yeah. of the, the questions that presently exist over whether, you know, mail-in ballots are a legitimate way to hold an election, you know, a number of different things. Also, I think that have to do, if, if you're an observer of, of the election at the moment, that have to do with just the dynamic we were talking about as we were beginning. You know, Hina, you mentioned that you had to stand in a really long line for early voting, and we're seeing that across the yes. country. So I think that, yes. that you know, there is, there is already apprehension about the election because of the different nature of the candidates. And, um, you know, I saw a yard sign the other day. Uh, it, it was a it was a Biden yard sign, but it said um, it hasn't been great. <laughs> that was like the quote, right? And it was, <laughs> and it was kind of it was you know, had mimicked Donald Trump's here. Yeah. It, it hasn't been great, um, and I think that that is a really good way to encompass the effect that I think you know much of the country, no matter what side you're on, if you even align with a side, let's put it that way. I think right. much of the country um, agrees that there is 
at least a sense of divisiveness. Now, whether that divisive, divisiveness has always been there and we're just, you know, kind of making light of it now more, right? Or, or it's coming to light, I should say. That's another matter entirely, I guess. But um, there's no doubt that most Americans are in agreement that we are in a place of division and um, tension that we were not, uh, you know, let's say five mm-hmm. or six years ago. Uh, or if if those tensions were in existence uh, then, which I think it's very fair to say that they were, they now right. have a public forum that they previously did not have. So mm-hmm. the, the topic of, of what it feels like to be in this election, uh, this is kind of one of those <laughs> moments where I wish people could see my face because the look on my face is like, ah, that's what it is. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that noise did it. Did that noise do it for you? Yeah. Uh, okay, I feel okay. like I relate. To that noise, it makes sense. And how just <laughs> watching the debates, right? I have had the great pleasure of sitting through all of these debates. And it's on the one hand, I feel like I have to sort of check the assumptions I bring sometimes, specifically mm-hmm. with the first debate, where, you know, we weren't five minutes into it, everybody's cutting everyone off talking over everyone. And my first thought is, this is so unpresidential. What? Like, this is this is a presidential debate for a world power, right? And I see better debates from novice, you know, debate kids in high school who can at least, like, mm-hmm. argue a point. Mm-hmm. So to go from these kids who are just learning the rules of debate to seeing folks who are well-versed and trained in this process, making the entire nation kind of look like a fool uh, just in the, by the way of handling these conversations. And I guess what, what was so weird to me was, you know, they're not really talking about much of anything because they're just trying to, well, this is what he said. Well, this is what he did. Well, this is, and, and so we never actually get to a point of conversation any sort of real issues for the voter because then they get undermined by the back and forth between Biden and Trump. And it just, on the one hand, I want to be like, what, what is happening here? Like, what is this Mm -hmm. world where this is even acceptable? And on the other hand, I remember who it is that is engaging these debates. And I realized, well, we've kind of set it up for ourselves in this way by nature of Trump being involved. And so, you know, at least they were managing the mics in the last debate that did help, but Mm -hmm. it, they weren't suddenly now like getting into the nitty gritty about their own uh, plans or ideas for tackling issues as much as just trying to throw each other under the bus. So yeah, I feel like that sound really does sum it well, up for me in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm so glad I could make it. You know, I I think you're getting at something that that we really need not to ignore. I mean, two things come to mind in regard to that. The first is that um, the reason why they don't spend a ton of time, I think, talking. I mean, you know, we should we should be honest about the function of debates. I, I mm. think at the outset, mm-hmm. yeah. Debates are spectacles that are intended to serve, in my mind at least, a variety of different social functions, and educating the public is not necessarily one of them. Correct. So when um, we watch the spectacle of the debate, one of the things that occurs to me is that um, 
it is a type of, you know, Andy, you and I have talked about this before, this idea of certain spectacles being a type of cultural theater, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. and it's intended to put people on display in certain ways. And um, this is why, you know, as we know, the, the first debate did not probably significantly um, hurt Donald Trump at the same time that it didn't significantly help him, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, his behavior was was... You know, he could be outflanked in a debate by an eighth grade, you know, novice debater any day of the week because that eighth grader presumably could follow some rules and, you know, had, you know, knew when it was time to stop talking and when it was time to start. So mm-hmm. that, though, to me is kind of beside the point, I guess, because on the one hand, I share that frustration thinking, what is this? This is supposed to be, you know, uh, this is supposed to be a moment where we learn these things and where we we see how people respond under pressure. But But the more that I think about it, I'm not sure that that that's what debates are. I do think that they're public spectacles that are designed to highlight a politician in a very specific sort of way. And that they are much more about the effect of how um, Mm -hmm. the politician carries her or himself, I guess himself in this case. Um, I I don't think we can forget that Donald Trump did in the 2016 election. We can't forget the fact that he roamed over into Hillary Clinton's personal space, right? Right. As, As that debate went on. And those are not, accidents. Now, you know, on the, okay, sorry, another caveat. I haven't even gotten to point B, but, (laughs) um, but this is how, this is how I ramble. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about Donald Trump on the one hand as being entirely incompetent. And then a lot of people talk about him as a person who quote unquote knows what he's doing, right? This is planned. Right. I'm not sure that it matters at all. Whether he does or does not know what he's doing, I think all that matters is the fact that he bears a sort of persona and a set of behaviors that accompany that, that are uh, that that to his supporters indicate a degree of irreverence for political process, which is attractive to them, and that also demonstrates right. a type of white masculinity that they believe um, is tied to American ideals. Yes. So having said that, I, I guess what, what I want to say back to that kind of spectacle idea is that while um, a debate is perhaps not a setting that is actually designed to share a lot of information, right? If you wanted the policy information, you could have gone to the webpage months ago. Mm-hmm. I think that that now the American public has created a discourse about Donald Trump's discourse, mm. if, if that makes sense. Like debates have now become sort of, and just really the conversation surrounding Trump, like a second <clears throat> layer discourse. So for a while, I think back in 2016, we were saying things like, can you believe that, you know, he said this? Yeah. And now uh, we spend time talking as, you know, I, I know is, is a point of interest for, for us as, as a group here. We've been uh, talking a lot about how shocked we are. You know, can mm-hmm. you believe he still says this? But But we don't recognize that our discourse continues to reflect those very same themes. Right. We can't stop talking about him, but now we're talking about how he talks. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we've produced we've produced a second tier phenomenon. I think I think Which you're spot on. Yeah. Go ahead, Hannah. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say, going back to Andy, your first comment about the debates feeling unpresidential. And then I think that also goes to how he speaks and interacts and his as Leslie, you mentioned his complete irreverence for any sort of rule or way of doing things. And I think that that shock of like, 
how could he say that? Like, how could he do that? How could he X, Y, Z? I think that definitely plays a role in how we are perceiving him or, or that like judge him or not. Um, yeah. That's that shock. I feel like never goes away. I think you're right because we, both both in our responses, our shock to how all of this is being handled, the shock in pretty much all of the news media coverage following the debates. Oh my God, can you believe that he said? Can you believe that he didn't condemn white supremacists? Can you believe? Can you believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have this every time. It's whenever he says anything, whenever he tweets anything. And and I, I think you're right. We We reinforce this the same discourse that shocks us by holding it to certain standards that we think and that we assume should be upheld. And ultimately, at least in the sense of our response to Trump, I suspect is, is largely ineffective because it allows him to keep shocking. Right. I think it's important to note as well that, um, you know, I tend to think about uh, religion and rhetoric both very functionally. So mm-hmm. I'm always thinking like, well, that's because I tend to think of religion as rhetoric. So anyway, hand, you know, hand is displayed on the table. Okay. So, but, but I mentioned that because there is not, uh, there is not unanimity regarding the shock across American culture. So I, I guess the question, the second tier question that I'm asking about our second tier rhetoric, <laughs> all the tiers, <laughs> all the levels, is, you know, think about who is shocked. Um, Not everyone is shocked. In fact, uh, I think one of the things that you find from Trump supporters is that um, many of them will say something akin to, he says some things I don't like, or he presents himself in a way that I find undesirable. Nevertheless, I like A, B, and C, right? Right. So the the degree of shock is probably an indication of the expectations of the person who is shocked if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that to me is a signal that those who experience shock imagine that the president should not behave in such a way, or they imagine that the political system is something that it is not. So in my mind, at least constantly talking about, uh, you know, when, when the shocked subculture and, you know, I'm going to presume the three of us are members of the shocked subculture since we've, (laughs) we've all been saying that, but (laughs) you know, the members of this shocked subculture um, are, I suspect, you know, what's the function of talking about your shock all the time? I suspect the function of that is to reiterate that this is not normal. So mm-hmm. the more that I can say to, you know, someone in, you know, to my neighbor, can you believe, did you watch the more that we can reinforce our sense that the boundaries have been broken. So from like mm-hmm. a very basic you know, social analysis, you know, if we were to imagine ourselves flying aerially above the debates, right. Then, um, what I see going on with this conversation about, about the outrageousness of this or that political display is really much more about us wanting the political display not to be that way and, and uh, trying to establish boundaries for what a degree of normalcy feels like. Which, back to the mm-hmm. topic of affect, I don't know about you, but I'm dying for some normal these days in, in any shape that I can get it, right? So yeah. I, I sort of wonder, you know, I don't have any data about this, but I sort of wonder if our sense or our desire for normalcy has heightened even the shock rhetoric regarding the debate. Mm. I don't know. You know, it just, it's just like a, an idea that occurs to me that in a time of social stress, could it be that cultures 
call for normalcy or, you know, express other forms of it in shock rhetoric that they wouldn't if, if things were otherwise, you know, a little bit more mundane for them. Just an idea. And I think Andy brought this up in, um, in our conversation last week about some some populations like marginalized populations never have access to that shock. Right. They, they've never felt normalcy. They've never, had any expectations for the American political system. And so for them, they're like, oh, yeah, he told the Proud Boys to stand by. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Or or that comment, apparently there's a comment that was made yesterday at the debate where Trump uh, apparently said good to 500 children at the border who lost their children. He was like, what do you have to say for that? And apparently he said good. Yeah. So I've, I've read two things. Some folks say he said good. And then some folks, he said, go ahead or something like this, where he was trying to move the conversation along. So he, he uh, could dodge the question, but it's also really interesting that a bunch of people heard him say good. I mean, that isn't in itself. Yeah. Some, that, that, that's data yeah. in itself. Right. Right. Um, and I think you're totally right. That shock is also a sign of privilege, right? Mm hmm. To be shocked means that you were living in a world where previously things were, at least to you, stable. Right, and, exactly. And that also tells us a lot about who is experiencing what, to- what type of emotions in the midst of all of this. I've thought about this quite a lot as it pertains to COVID and my job, for instance. So as a person mm. who teaches, my job has been turned upside down. There are lots of people who don't have the luxury of teaching from home or who don't have the luxury of working from home right. who's lives are certainly different, but in many ways still, at least in terms of physically showing up in places and doing certain sorts of things, they haven't changed all that much. So what strikes me as shock is actually a sign of some of the the cushioning and the comforts that I have as a result of, you know, some of the class privilege I've got, in, you know, being in the line of work that I'm in. So there's lots and lots of layers to who, I just totally agree with what you said, lots of layers to who <laughs> feel shock and why. Yeah, I agree. That's that was sort of my response and seeing just on social media the range of responses from people I know regarding Trump's comments to the Proud Boys and him saying that because I felt like predominantly I saw white people who were just shocked. Oh my god. Oh my mm-hmm. god, I can't believe he didn't say this. Whereas people of color had very different responses. It wasn't shock. There was frustration. There was anger. But Mm -hmm. there was a continuing thread of a number of issues that we've seen turn to prevalent topic where it's like, no, we still need to address these issues. And I think that I I feel is very representative of what we're seeing here in terms of the privilege because for so many white people and their now experiencing a type of reaction to what's happening in the government, especially in light of COVID, that is not new for the majority of marginalized groups in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so just the range of those responses, I thought was very telling. And I don't fault them. I'm not saying that, but rather it, it does demonstrate our privilege and what we're accustomed to. And then why, of course, some people are so just dismayed at what's happening when on surface level, I I feel like it's kind of obvious in a lot of ways, right? Yes, he says these things. We know he says these things. And he has been since he was running for president back in 2016. I almost said 2012. It's been been so long. It's been a long four years. (laughs) 
And so I do think that that is is really one of the main issues. And and I feel like for a lot of people, depending on race or class, those privileges are now being challenged in ways that we're just not really accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lauren Berlant, you know, who's a critical theorist, um, has mm-hmm. a really interesting idea that I um, used in in some of in, in my last book on sex scandals, and I I'm just totally into this idea, and I want to throw it out here and see if it's useful for the conversation we're having now. Um, she argues that part of American identity is claiming to be traumatized, and and so so let me let me flesh it out uh, because yeah. there's more to say. So. Berlant's concept is that um, there are folks on the one hand who have, in sort of a more objective way, and I'm thinking when I say objective way, I'm thinking here about the way that scholar Marilyn Fry, a feminist theorist, talks about oppression, right? Just because you say you're oppressed doesn't mean you are. There are some definable moments that that you can point to that, that most everyone logs as oppression. So as far as trauma goes, Berlant's argument is that there are, you know, on the one hand, Americans who have, as, as classes or groups of people, experienced actual types of trauma as a result of their uh, of their underprivilege or as a result of being less frequently represented or having their voices, you know, again, not heard often. And then there are other people who tend to be folks with quite a lot of privilege who experience the exposure of their privilege as a type of trauma in itself. So she's, you know, she's oversimplistically, and, and she, you know, I think totally, you know, agrees to this, but is, you know, talks about kind of the two Americas, where on the one hand, you have people who, because of their lack of privilege, who do experience real discrimination and real oppression and, and poverty and incredible shrinking of the middle class that we've seen, you know, happening over the past couple mm-hmm. of decades. On the other hand, you have a group of people who, because of the rise of many of the first group and because of the vocalization of many in the first group are now for the first time aware that they have privilege at all. And that's uncomfortable. And the language Mm. or the rhetoric that they have to describe their discomfort at their exposed privilege is trauma. So everyone, isn't that an interesting idea? It's like everyone comes out talking about themselves as traumatized. And the argument that she basically makes is uh, she, she goes on to argue that Americans act like, and this is her phrase, infantile citizens. So like a bunch of infants. And that we are easily traumatized by many things. Some of us have just experienced mm-hmm. flat out trauma, but others of us, those with, with greater privilege, have become so sensi- sensitive. I mean, it's really the opposite of the snowflake argument, if we're being quite honest about it. Mm-hmm. That to be a privileged person in the United States tends to mean that you are sensitive and fragile about most everything. Mm-hmm. That, you know, obviously gets back to some of the shock thing that we've been talking about. I, I think it also explains mm-hmm. why it is that Trump is an attractive political leader to a lot of people. You know, the trope of the white masculine politician who is aggressive and who will defend us. I mean, this plays right into Berlant's right. notion that if Americans see their politicians as almost like fathers, figures. I mean, not to not to bring the question, who's your daddy into it? But yeah, Um, if if Americans (laughs) understand politicians in this sort of fatherly way, and and there are a bunch of scholars who talk about this. And one of the terms that I like to use to describe it is presidentialism. But if, Hmm. if you see your political leader as a father type figure, then you're going to expect different things from him. And I am using, I'm using male pronouns intentionally now. You're going to expect different things from him than you would if you understand him as something different. If you understand him as a bureaucratic arm of a government, that's going to feel different effectively than thinking 
of this politician as a father sort of figure. And this is also Mm -hmm. why, uh, you know, lots of interesting literature exists out there about what female politicians have to go through just to get elected. This is also one of the reasons why women have have a difficult time even being elected to big national offices. It's because they don't come off as father figures. Right. So mm-hmm. there's a, a really prominent role that gender plays here in, in part of that effect. There's a, a lot of emotions going on, but I, I really am intrigued with this idea that Americans, you know, function as a bunch of, of children and that one of the ways that they get heard in the public sphere is by claiming trauma. Again, Berlant says some of it legitimate and some of it not. But it's a it's a fascinating idea, at least as far as I'm concerned, and thinking about how we get our voices heard politically and who we wish to elect. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting to consider. And in a way, I can see where she's coming from. It's not something that I've put a lot of thought into, but I feel like what we're seeing in the conversations between Biden supporters, Trump supporters now, there's this squabbling in a lot of ways where ultimately I feel in terms of whether it's like healthcare education, there are a lot of things where people might actually be more or less on the same page. But one thing that did stand out to me, and though it didn't hold much water in the debate last night, but that did stand out was a brief moment early on when Trump was trying to talk about the COVID response in blue states versus red states and how in New York they had all of these issues and he was making a claim about this is what happens when you well, he didn't really say much, but he was sort of blaming New York for not handling it well. And Biden almost had a great response because he responded saying, well, that's the difference here, because I don't see them as red states and blue states. I see them as the United States. Then immediately it was like, but the the COVID problems are in the red states. Um, And I was like, oh, we were so close. But I feel like there's this sort of like pitting everybody against one another, which this election has brought to the fore the level of divisiveness that we are seeing. That It was there on some level, but it is absolutely, the past few years, a lot of the rhetoric coming from Trump has certainly incited those divisions, I think, to increase. And we see the sort of like furthering gap. Yeah. I, I wanted to actually get back to Leslie's comment on the, the debates being theater for what I think is the debates are, and not only the debates, but the campaign in general is a theater for displaying masculinity. And the fact that we don't get much policy information during these debates, but we kind of get like this, this performance of masculinity that Trump always tries to overwhelm Biden. I mean, and also, Leslie, you mentioned earlier, he tried to physically overwhelm Hillary. And so that also plays out in the campaign overall, where you've seen stories about Biden, who was wearing a mask to protect himself from COVID. Obviously, everyone should be doing that, by the way, where they were trying to feminize him wearing the mask. They're like, oh, he's not tough. That's why he's wearing a mask. Or I think there was a comment by some Republican news person who was saying, it's so effeminate of Biden to wear a mask in public. Our president's not like that, et cetera, et cetera. And you also see, I feel like there was a huge, it, not, it was a huge story that Biden actually loves his son or like gives him care and attention. And that obviously we associate care work with femininity with women. And so that seemed to be this huge story where most liberal people were like, I see, we see nothing wrong with that. That's great that he loves his son. And then the other side of this story, the more conservative um, take on that was that, oh, look, he loves his son. Look at him hugging. That's not normal. Look at him hugging his son. That's not normal behavior. Kind of ultra feminizing him in that way to kind of 
discredit him. And I think that's, I think this is an interesting point that you bring up, Leslie, in terms of masculinity. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about um, political life in general is, and I'm talking here about American political life, but I mean, I know that these, you know, these ideas translate other places as well, at least, you know, over the past few decades, and and definitely since the Reagan era, I mean, I think there's been a sense that um, the way that you win elections is by, is through a rhetoric of fear. And now there's lots and lots of, of data, you know, across the 20th century of, of Iraq. I, I'm not trying to say this is like a, a new thing with Reagan, you know, political elections have probably always been to some degree about fear. But I'm just thinking really, even from Nixon yeah. forward, I mean, let's just let's go back that far about a type of rhetoric that indicates that there is a threat, and that the politician is the solution mm-hmm. to the threat. And right. so while the the question over whether, you know, any one random person can quote unquote fight off a virus, right? These might seem to be ridiculous types of things to say since, you know, viruses, at least as far as I know, don't like show up for fistfights. But the idea here is not so much about a physical ability to to punch something or stab something or shoot something, right? The idea is fear. And so a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds COVID mm-hmm. Um, that we've heard, that we've heard coming from some subcultures has been yes it's a bad thing but I'm not afraid of it I'm not going to live in fear so the way that the message right. of weakness at least you know from what I've been seeing has transmitted or has been transmitted is really regarding whether the person in in question whether the person who might potentially get COVID is or is not afraid of it and that that is the signal and that the yeah. mask is the emblem of their fear if that makes sense. So that's one mm-hmm. really fascinating thing, you know, too. I, I think that it, it dovetails so nicely with so many of the other things we know about the ways that political contests have worked for the past several decades in the U.S., which does say a lot about, well, let me, I mean, let me just sort of cut to the chase. I'm thinking about the work that I've done on, you know, what happens to a politician in the midst of a sex scandal, a male politician, I should add. If you're a female politician, just quit right now. Um, but uh, for for an entirely different set of reasons, <laughs> yeah. we can talk about some other time. But um, actually, it's the same reasons we're talking about. We assume that masculinity and virility are signs of leadership. And, um, right. mm-hmm. and these ideas are very strongly endorsed by a number of religious groups that are really prominent in the U.S. So these ideas circulate so readily in our rhetoric. And, mm-hmm. you know, at least in my research, um, if you have broken all the moral rules, there is still an out for you so long as you come across as a strong sort of defender figure. And more to the point, if the public is afraid of something and you seem to be the guy, masculine word intended, if you seem to be the guy who can rescue the public from that thing, then you can do almost anything you want, you know, in in a a very sort of practical way with and and have very few consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think this is why, um, you know, when we're trying to think about why masks suddenly became what we would call a political thing, right? Or why mm-hmm. common sense right. medical intervention would suddenly uh, take on epic proportions symbolically. It's very yeah. much about understanding that displays of fear have long been understood as signs of weakness in politics, no matter how yes. common sense a display, you know, I don't know about you. I am afraid of COVID. I'm not paralyzed by COVID, but I certainly think that I should be afraid of it. <laughs> And, right. and that yes. admission, right, that admission is not something that certain people in certain political positions can say and still remain large, it retain, sorry, large sectors of the American public support. Mm. Well, and I wonder, too, how much of this also ties into certain 
perceptions of what it means to be an American. Because I feel like this this does kind of go back and link to ideas both of American exceptionalism, but just who Americans are in the world. Because we do have this sort of narrative of being, I mean, we have manifest destiny, right? We're conquering everything. We, mm-hmm. the Americans are always depicted as the strong sort of people who come in and save the day. And so the idea of being afraid, though, however logical it is, of a virus, thus Trump making fun of Biden during the first debate for wearing a mask, is very emblematic of a certain masculine narrative of America and American identity, Mm -hmm. that we have to be strong. We cannot show fear or weakness, even though protecting yourself and protecting others, you would think would come across as like helpful and wanting to do what you can to keep things moving, right? So I think that that's that's evident even in whether it's the masks being politicized or just the conversations and the debates, that these issues kind of present themselves. And we can see the ways in which those ideas, however loosely, are assumed by a number of people within the United States. I think this is a great example of um, what you've just said is a great example of some of the things that you can find all over social media today as people attempt to use religion to talk about the political um, climate today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the one hand, I think you can find, um, and I'll just talk about it from, you know, the perspective of the evangelicals that I study. But on the one hand, you can find a lot of evangelical voices talking about how Trump might be undesirable in some ways, but that because of you know uh, what they perceive to be his anti-abortion stance or what they perceive to be a number of other issues pertaining to morality, you know, the, there is a there is a, a justification for supporting him. On the other hand, I think you have a lot of of folks, some who identify as evangelical Christians, some who don't, who want to make the argument that, you know, taking common sense medical precautions and caring for immigrants and the poor and caring, you know, that, that these are actually closer to what religion, quote unquote, should be. Right. That to me mm-hmm. is a great example of the flexibility of this term religion as it operates right in in our current political climate, where it is an umbrella term that can be used and manipulated flexibly by whatever group needs it to mean whatever they need it to mean at that at that moment. And that's that's just a very mundane mm-hmm. social yes. fact, right? That um, almost any powerful yeah. authority like religion will be used to you know, kind of like a lump of Play-Doh, you know, you squish it into whatever form you need it to be in order to get across, you know, your particular point or agenda or that of your group. But I I think one of the things that that so many of us don't recognize is that even, you know, at least how I think about religion is that if it's a type of, of rhetorical power, kind of like as Bruce Lincoln says, that you can't, its power comes from the fact that you can't readily critique it, right? Uh, there is there is no, mm-hmm. you know, way if someone says that God told them to do something, there's no way to say, well, prove it, right? There's there's no litmus test in the way that we can we can turn to other right. types of, of, uh, of proofs in order to test the claim. And so many of our national ideas about exceptionalism, about this, you know, manifest destiny notion, about even the qualities that comprise a proper leader, so many of these ideas um, are very much rooted in, even if we would not call the ideas themselves religious, you know, they often fall into the realm of politics, but but they are uncritiquable, let's put it that way. Um, and so they hover sort of as this, um, I- I'm thinking aerially again, I'm not sure why I'm thinking, you know, from the sky, but... <laughs> Um, they hover in this space above us. You know, Craig Martin calls these absent authorities, 
where because Mm -hmm. you can't ask the authority itself or because the person who wrote the text is dead or, you know, for any number of reasons, the, the authority needs a spokesperson. Let's put it that way. And it is the spokesperson's job then when we think functionally about this to read onto the authority their own subgroups, desires and wants and wishes. So I think that's exactly why, I mean, to kind of bring this full circle, that's exactly why we see so many of the dynamics regarding the debates that we did. It's why some people are shocked Mm -hmm. and some aren't, Mm -hmm. right? Um, When you are speaking, not just for Donald Trump or about Donald Trump, but when you are speaking about these ideals about what America should be, those function in a very religious way as uncritiquable ideas that sort of seem to hover in the atmosphere. And and so what that means is that any number of individuals step in as the spokespersons to log their emotion and to log their response and to have these debates in the absence of any sort of firm boundary line, which seem all that much more effectively shocking when the boundary lines that we used to know are gone. But that the claim that there is an absent authority always necessitates a spokesperson. And the spokesperson mm. will become the the mouthpiece then for the group and their interests. Getting back to Durkheim's whole notion that when you know a society talks about religion, it is the society talking about itself, right? So there's always that element of projection right. that's going on. So that's why I, you know, this the conversation about the debate and about the presidential election and really about sort of governmental politics in, in, in general is never to me. Um, not about religious ideas and functions, even if we're not talking explicitly about deities and such, because it is always about Mm -hmm. the reification of the nation state and the types of authority moves that people engage in to be the spokesperson for what the nation means. And that to me is why this conversation may appear on the surface not to be about religion if you think that religion is about a group with certain doctrines, right? And the text here and there. Mm-hmm. But if we think about religion more as a rhetorical mechanism by which people claim to speak for absent authorities, then um, every form of nationalism is almost by definition one that we could speak about in this way. Right. And I think that kind of does, in a way, get down to what might be the crux of the issue for maybe this campaign. I, I don't know, but just what you've said made me think this, because when you see, on the one hand, liberals, for lack of a better word, fighting for, uh, marching for um, reproductive rights, women's health care, and then you see, on the other hand, people who would identify as conservative saying that they will, they refuse to wear a mask because it's infringing on their rights. I think that, in a way, we have two competing ideas of nationalism, ultimately. And, and we're drawing on this idea of rights. This idea of drawing on our rights and our freedoms is, is not a new one. And it, it's sort of one of the main ways in which Americans work to assert power. But what's interesting in this moment, especially in the use of my body, my choice slogans to protest wearing masks, I think is a very interesting moment, both of demonstrating power, then thinking maybe to what you were saying about Berlant in terms of arguing that what is happening is oppression, but also delegitimizing the other group's claims, both of identity, of rights, of nationalism. Because in a way, we have different ideas of what American nationalism looks like based on what these groups are saying. I think that there are a few things going on in that use of the um, abortion rights slogan. And I think they're really important to note. 
Um, it, it, that's an agitating thing to hear for a lot of people um, because, you know, it feels, hey, you can't say that. Okay, so it, it's a turf war, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why some anti-mask folks used it, right, is to, I mean, it, it was meant as ammunition. Let's just be like really clear about that, right? There's, so there's that level. Um, yeah. Back to levels and tiers. Here I go. Um, so there's that. <laughs> but there's also another element that I think is very important to note. And this is uh, this is one of my least favorite parts of rhetoric. But it's, the I think, one of the most important ones to remember in studying it. I think we have the idea that people are consistent in their in their argumentation. And we want people to be consistent. And people rarely are. Um, this is why uh, virtually every time we engage in a debate with someone or we're talking about kind of the political landscape, it seems like the go-to form of ammunition is to point out someone's inconsistencies. And, you know, if you if you believe mm-hmm. that, that, that our yeah. reality is generally logical and that we should hold each other to those standards, then that's a very attractive move to make. And, and when I say, if you believe that things are logical, I'm not just speaking here... I'm not just saying that that uh, liberals are that way or conservatives are that way. I think that all people think that they are not all people. Most people believe themselves to be logical. Right. Uh, okay, I know I'm, I'm making like absolute logical statements here, but <laughs> I think um, a more nuanced perspective is that we use those sorts of logical arguments when they suit us. So thinking about the ways that we understand rights, thinking about the the notion even that a mask is an assault on someone's rights that we can liken to abortion as an assault on fetal rights or can we, right? That's, that's a, a lot of how the, the abortion logo, you know, or a slogan, sorry, being applied to, you know, mm-hmm. to the question of masking. If we expect that humans are consistent in their rhetoric, then we're going to be really confused all the time. But if we recognize, I think that rhetoric is, is a tool that gets thrown out here and there used in certain situations to build up a effect of whatever type or another, and then discarded at another point, and that only a thin veneer of logic has to exist in order to uh, to kind of drive whatever political machine it is forward. And I think it's a little bit easier to understand why we have such inconsistencies, why a person against a mask who also may very well claim to be uh, you know, anti-abortion can at the same time use an abortion rights slogan to defend their anti-masking position. Gosh, that, that just to me, I mean, that's, that's again, I mean, I think it's talking in a very religious way. It's, it's appealing to these, to these notions of rights and values as these absolute things that you can appeal to, to defend whatever you want. And, you know, I know that there's been a number of commentators who have tried to point out, particularly to those who are against masking, a number of commentators have said, well, you don't have a right to everything. Did you not take civics class? (laughs) Okay. Well, I get that. I get the frustration. But that, again, is is speaking to the public as if individuals act in logical ways and are, and are entirely consistent. And again, we know that they don't, us included. So what we're left with often is this category of rights as this, again, it's, it's an amorphous authoritative blob. And so long, because it functions, you know, a right, we have rights. That itself, in my mind, at least, to use kind of Martin's definition of it, that functions as its own absent authority. There will always be a spokesperson who will appear to tell you that they have the right to do whatever they want. Uh, and they will always yeah. have a, you know, have mm-hmm. a legitimizing strategy in their rhetoric to explain why they have this right. 
I think what is so shaking about this, not just this election, but just even the candidacy of Trump, is that while we've all understood that rhetoric is an inherently flexible medium, it used to at least feel like, for certain subcultures, that there were some boundaries in place in which the rhetoric could move. And it it now appears to me, at least, that there are fewer boundaries. And so even if people before were not entirely consistent, there were at least some, I don't know, I'm thinking of like bumper bowling, right? There were at least some bumpers down the lanes to keep the ball from going in the gutter. And I'm not so sure, I mean, not to, you know, not to like reduce this entire podcast to bumper bowling. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not sure that, that we're at that place anymore because I, I do think it feels like the rhetoric if, you know, if the rhetoric is our bowling ball, I do feel like I could throw it down on someone else's lane and it would still be considered legitimate rhetoric. It would still receive in terms of authority from the audience. It would still receive a hearing. You know, maybe I could could bowl a strike on someone else's lane is what I'm trying to say to take this metaphor way too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the I think what what ties to that is this whole fake news rhetoric that has emerged where anything goes and then also and also free speech the free speech card i should say works in the same way where now i feel like we do like free speech we hear free speech and we automatically attach it to like someone who wants to express their white supremacist Mm -hmm. views and then anything that goes against whatever agenda whatever red agenda i guess we can say um becomes this fake news so you know nothing is real or nothing can be said against them or against any nothing could be said against trump yeah i mean thinking back to the litmus test basically that leslie was saying earlier the where we would normally put a lot more stock in in verifying certain issues or claims or ideas it's not something that really matters for a lot of people it seems now either it's like this is the be all end all or no that's just it's fake news it's a conspiracy it's we've now shifted away right. from that entirely and and that's not to say that liberals aren't doing it also there there is a total rejection of anything right that republicans say as fact and while there's obviously precedent for that much more common now to see just across the political spectrum that automatic dismissal of the other side's yeah. claim regardless of the facts either disproving or supporting it. Yeah. I don't know that the election is going to solve this. <laughs> no matter who wins. No. Oh, I think you're right. And I was just thinking about something Hina said earlier when we were talking about how privilege can mitigate your shock at what's going on. It has always been the case that marginalized groups have been subjected to the inconsistencies and whims of more powerful groups. And that's, that's again, how powerful rhetoric works. If, if there are sort of absent claims, a spokesperson steps in, speaks for the, the needs of the subculture at, at the moment. And, and uh, so long as that person is of sufficient authority and power, you know, that's how the social rules get created. Sometimes I'm willing to take out the crystal ball and talk about, you know, what might happen. I feel really <laughs> unsure at the moment about what results the election will serve up. If Trump wins, I think that we'll continue to see some of the same. I I mean, I don't think anything is going to change fundamentally. I think we'll still see some of the same unrest. Do do you think it will be interesting to see, you know, how Congress goes? I think that, you know, what the congressional makeup ends up looking like could very much change a sense of empowerment. Um, Do you think things will get worse? 
like more high end anxiety. Yeah, no, no, I think that's entirely possible. And I think, but this is why I, maybe, maybe I, I feel less likely to pull out the crystal ball on this because of COVID, to be honest. I think there's already a, a high level anxious buzz throughout American culture. And mm. it's very, and, and a lot of anger at how one lives under these types of constraints. You know, think about like this crazy stuff lately going on with schemes to kidnap governors and, um, you know, even, even here in, uh, you know, I live on the Kansas side of Kansas City. Like there was a scheme to kill the mayor of Wichita over his mask. Yeah, yeah. What? Over his mask mandate. I I have a, a good friend who, who works in public health who has made the remark that, you know, basically kind of the, the numbers of, of public health uh, servants who are um, receiving death threats or threats of some sort is extraordinarily high right now. Is it just about COVID? Well, probably not. I, you know, again, mm. I think as we said at the top mm-hmm. of the at the top of our recording together, that it's hard to know how to account for anxiety when you've got multiple instabilities functioning at once. But mm-hmm. this is a great case right. to me. You know, back to kind of Durkheim again. You know, thinking about you know anomie of of what it means when the norms that you thought were in place are no longer there. What it means to live in a world uh, that's missing its structures. And when the structures, mm-hmm. when the structures are missing for everyone, which they are with COVID at the moment, right? The, I'm not talking just about, you know, political anxieties on the part of liberals. But when the structures are missing for everyone, everyone's going to experience tension from that. Um, but this is why I don't think that even, you know, even if there were to be some sort of, of, of political settling in the next few months, that our, our fears over COVID would, I think, absolutely take take political form and shape, because I think that, you know, realms of authority are where we are, you know, we use the the language from politics and religion, for instance, to talk about, you know, the the other sorts of tensions and conflicts that go on in our lives. Yeah, that's not a happy note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) But I think but I think maybe it's where we are. It's a very 2020 way to end. I think it's a very 2020 way to end. I like that. That that's very fitting. Well, Mm-hmm. I want to say thank you to both of you for taking the time to join me here today. We've had a fascinating conversation. And I think if there's one parting idea I want to share with our listeners in the U.S. is regardless of what side you fall on, please vote. Go <laughs> yes. vote. Vote early. Go vote now. Polls are open in most places. So please vote. And we'll just have to stay tuned to see what happens in the election in the coming days. And thank you. Thank you, Andy, for hosting. Of course. And inviting us. Such a pleasure. Yes, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SC0, 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, 
Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.